Today on the Orthodox Ethos Podcast, Lesson 11 on the Truth of Our Faith, on the Eternal Torments of Hell. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Blast also fear of thy blessed commandments, and tremble down all carnal desires. We may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing, since things will please unto thee. Without the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and at least of the glory and the Father, Holy Good Life, creating Spirit. Well, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Evlogiton sin Christe on Theon Simon O Pansom Fustus Alis Sanadixas Canta Pemsas Aftis to Pnevma to aigi on ke di afton, tinikumeni saigi nemsas, filantropedoxasi. Okay, alright. Let's hope we don't have issues with the. Uh focus, but we're going to go to our, our screen, get started with our text, and give me a shout out that you guys can see me, you can see the screen, just a few people need to write in there that they can see the screen, we've got two texts on the screen for us tonight, and we're going to focus, we're going to reference a third for a little bit at the end there. All right, is everybody, everybody can see the screen? Yeah, good, very good. And you can hear me and you can see me. All right, good. All right. So our text tonight is chapter 17. We're almost to the end. One more week to go. Uh, maybe this is a good time just to remind everybody we've got one more week to go. Of course, Christmas is coming up. We're going to barely get in our lectures before the beginning of Christmas. We will uh, uh, then take a break. We're going to take a break for about uh, a good month and some in a week or so. And then in February, we'll start up with the spring courses. We won't leave you in Patreon. We'll be posting. We'll be sharing. We might, we're going to be focusing on getting uh, back to some of our podcasts, but also getting uh, the, these courses on another platform in a, in a more limited form without the question and answers. Uh, as a course, as a standalone course, people can follow. For those outside uh, of Patreon, we're probably 99% going to do that in uh, January. Uh, and uh, hopefully that will be a way for people to uh, obviously be, be benefited, hopefully, by the lectures and the material, but also find their way uh, to uh, the spring lectures so we can uh, grow the... Uh, community. We're also on the verge, I'm happy to report, we're on the verge of uh, launching a f forum, Orthodox 
Ethos Forum and where you can go and you can discuss and you can exchange and ask questions and download texts and all kinds of things. And that's just a few days away. So you'll have that also to uh, access. It's only for Patreon people. And that'll be uh, accessible, uh, of course, uh, throughout the whole period. We're not, we're gonna, we're not gonna be lecturing. So, uh, yeah, we'll talk about that if you want, uh, Kate, uh, a little bit. We're looking to produce a podcast on the question of the vaccine coming up. Uh, <laughs> yay, yeah, yeah, Maria. We're gonna have a forum. So that's uh that's coming up, and we, we have we have some of our brothers here tonight to thank for that. We're, we're going to be working on it as moderators, and it'll be, I think, very good for uh, for everybody to have access to that. Because look, you can only cover so much material in a lecture in an hour, an hour and a half. You can only answer so many questions, and you can only uh, have so much chat time. So that's going to be an important addition to this whole Patreon platform. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, we got churches closed here in Greece already. It's been closed for a while, a couple weeks. And supposedly they were going to open up now, but they're not. This is typical. But what's uh, frightening to me, uh, Kate and everybody, is that the church here seems to have become a little bit used to this. In other words, the, 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 the chaos that erup- erupted in March you know, and the reaction of many and the, and the, uh, the whole environment, of course, it was fresh and there were people reacting. Now it's as if they've prepared us psychologically to accept this is this is the way it's to be. There are people fighting it, thank God. It always will be, and we'll see. But, um, yeah, I just said uh, that, not Discord, Discourse. It's going to be a Discourse server. It's our own server. In other words, it's not dependent on any other party. And it'll be a, a forum for discussion there. Uh, Discord is something else, Arturo. Yeah, it's a little different. So we'll talk about all that in the uh, in the question and answer section. Keep that, keep those uh, questions or comments if you want, and, and for me to comment on those things, you can put them in the questions, and we'll get to that. Let's get to our lecture on the internal on the eternal torments of hell. Obviously, no one including our Lord and God and Savior Jesus Christ, wants anyone to be separated and therefore to be in a place of regret, a place of sadness, a place of um, pain, even for a moment, let alone eternity. So there are many people who have, who have psychological human issues with this. You know, I mean, as human beings, we don't want to see this. And so they think, well, maybe a solution is just to say it doesn't exist. Let's ignore it. Let's, exact, let's say that hell doesn't exist. Let's ignore scriptural testimony and patristic testimony. But uh, unfortunately, that's not the solution. The solution is to embrace Christ. And uh, one of the great sadness, one of the great uh, uh, errors here, there are many errors, that, uh, that come out of this main era of rejecting this teaching is, uh, let me sh- shut that down. Well, no, I, I don't know if I can actually, let me, uh, uh, okay. Uh, one of the main errors that come out of this is the, the, uh, the whole question of our s- salvation. We become lax. 
and uh, we don't realize that uh, this is uh, very dangerous for us. It's very dangerous for us. We'll talk about that toward the end. But just to set up this whole question, obviously there are people who are, you know, rightly upset about such a thing as an everlasting fire. The question is, what is the solution for that? And how do we how do we understand the Lord's teaching, and what is He calling us to? So let's uh, let's get into it. The question here is from the first question from our inquiry is, uh, well, doesn't this come into the conf- conflict with the goodness of God? How can there be a, a hell that's eternal and be a, there be a good God? And the script and the elder, as he does, answers immediately the scriptural passages to talk about. The, the, qual- the uh, question, well, let's look at what the Lord says, look at what the scriptures say, and then go from there. That's, that's, uh, that's the process here, not uh, listening to our thoughts, but listening to the Lord. And so he clearly says in Matthew 25, in several places, there is an everlasting punishment. That's the word of the Lord. He talks about a worm that dieth not, a fire that is not quenched. Uh, he's quoting, for the most part, scripture here. Uh, and and has in mind scripture that's been talked about from the days of the prophets, Isaiah and Daniel, where there is a clear reference to everlasting fire, everlasting uh, contempt uh, and shame. Uh, and the, uh, the inquirer comes back and says, well, we read in scripture some things here, uh, the last enemy shall be destroyed is death. I thought, therefore, that would mean that hell is destroyed, is it not? Uh, so hell will not exist as a, as a destruction of or annihilation of evildoers in order that they may they not remain unto eternity. And he says words, the words fire and torment do not mean something eternal, but only death, the placement on, into the ground, for man does not have an immortal soul. Well, talk about cacodoxy here. Uh, so the elder says, if it were as you say, then, of course, the judgment no longer has any meaning. You've just, you've just emptied the judgment of all meaning. And our, our Lord's words about the judgment in Matthew 25 then become, of course, meaningless, but also a lie. Our Lord's not teaching us the truth. Uh, so uh, this is obviously not the case. And the future judgment will happen for the following reasons. To reveal the righteousness of God, to reveal the injustices of men, to reward the good works of the righteous, and to chastise the unrepentant evildoers. Uh, our, our Lord and Savior teaches us that our soul is more valuable than all the world and that it is immortal. Of course it's immortal. It's a, a heretical teaching that is not immortal. It's created, but it's created for immortality. Our Savior tells us that hell is the place of eternal suffering. He comes back again. I'm going f- fairly quickly through this because there's a lot of other material that we're going to cover. So forgive me if... Uh, if I'm kind of, you know, just presenting it in a brief way. It's pretty repetitive. That's another reason why I'm going through it quickly. Uh, so the inquirer says, well, he is the father of all, and what kind of father would chastise his disobedient children with eternal torture? Is not a father always disposed to forgive his children? So the, the 
you notice that one thing that's going on with the choir is he's looking always to the stance of God. And I think one of the things we have to stress here is that the question of hell is not a question uh, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about, right? This is obviously just scratching the surface. Uh, the The question of hell, the question of the who created or where did hell come from uh, is a really important topic uh, that has been confused terribly in Western uh, theology, in heterodox theology in the West. And uh, one of the correctives to this has to be, in the 20th century, has to be Father John Romanini's book on uh, the Propatore Cor Amartema, the ancestral sin, and where he talks about what the patristic teaching is on hell. And there's this very, very bad idea in the West that God created hell. That's a total uh, delusion, and, and, and nowhere is it based in Scripture or in the Fathers that God created hell. Hell is a choice people make. Hell is, people are freely taken and go to that state of the rejection of God and the lack of communion with God. Obviously, God did not will that, does not will that, did not create that. And he even says in Scripture, as we'll see, that it was the place for the fallen angels. That's what, uh, what they chose. And of course, that's a result of their free will. Right? They freely chose to exist in that state. And they freely uh, uh, choose to remain in that state unrepentant. So uh, it's very important here, this idea that God is the problem. And therefore, the eternal torture is his doing. That's very mistaken. Of course, that's how he's approaching it in a rationalistic way. And he's been uh, fed on heterodox teaching. So... Uh, how is his father, father allowing this? And of course, God is forgiving. God wants the salvation of sinners. Uh, and the question is, in this life, this life, as St. Isaac Syrian says, is given for repentance. Uh, this life is given for repentance. So it depends on our repentance, our return, our love. Uh, our embrace of God, that's going to depend on whether we're in heaven or in hell, whether we're with God or outside of his communion and outside of eternal life uh, in the sense of eternal uh, bliss, eternal joy, uh, true life in God. Uh, he says here, I think this important section here, in the life on the other side of the grave, however, we are no longer able to repent. And that reminds us of the phrase from St. John Damascus, who, where he says, Ukestin, Ukestin metanya metathanaton. There is no repentance after death. And the, this is a very, very basic truth, uh, patristic teaching. People come and say, well, how do we pray for the repose then, if there's no repentance after death? Well, what happens after death for the repose is, re is, is that our repentance, in other words, our return, our prayer, our intercession, the saint's intercession, uh, essentially works because we're all of of one of one man Adam and of the second Adam uh, in by through baptism and so that collective uh, communion of mankind 
just like sin affects everyone and a sin committed anywhere affects everyone, so does love affect everyone everywhere and has a, has a beneficial, uh, could be very beneficial effect for those who are opposed. So they cannot repent, but we can pray on their behalf that their state is improved and the love of God overcomes all barriers uh, when there is a good disposition on the part of humanity. And that's the key, is that hell is when we choose it and we refuse to repent and we remain there uh, in this life and we have no, we don't depart this life with a good disposition. So there's a slight, uh, you know, how can we say, twist to the question of metanya or repentance after death. It's not that the, the person himself can repent because he's no longer a person, right? He's no longer a full human being. His soul and body are separated. And therefore, there is no repentance on his part. There's no return on his part. What he chose in this life, he now has because of that separation. Uh, but that does not mean that the love of the brethren and the love of God cannot improve his state. So that's that's the experience of the of the church for two thousand years. That's why we commemorate the reposed, and that's we've seen in the lives of the saints that in fact it does matter and things do change, and the love of uh, the brethren, the prayers of the brethren do matter. They increase uh, the repose and the refreshment of those who've departed departed this life with a good disposition who are already in Christ and for whatever reason they've they've lost their way in this life uh, and they're reposed with separation from God but they were baptized they had a good disposition and therefore there is uh, let's say material to work with there is a good disposition so getting back to the text, in the life uh, on the other side of the grave, however, we are no longer able to repent, given that there God does not judge us according to his omnipotence and goodness, but in accord to it, with his impartiality and righteousness, rewarding us according to, uh, each according to his deeds. Uh, and of course, if God were to forgive all the sins of men without justice or fairness, what would be the point of continuing alarming us with the terror of the eternal torments if in fact they did not exist is god a liar god clearly says they do exist and so he is not a liar and we cannot make him into a liar and then he goes on he says a short-lived sin cannot be punished with eternal punishment for this would mean that an unjust judgment on the part of god who is called just and all good so he's looking at this in a quantitative way he's saying look uh, one little sin and now eternal eternal uh punishment but the elder comes back and says, well, if that were the case, if it was a quantitative question and not a qualitative, in other words, it's not a question of a stance, it's not a question of a state, it's not a question of a disposition, that's what you're saying here, it's a question of quantity, well, then neither should the righteous be blessed eternally. It should be a short blessedness according to the, the, the goodness one does. And of course, if that were the case, there would be no eternal life, would there? Because what goodness do we do in this life? Uh, without Christ, we could do nothing. But, but compared to eternity, whatever we do would be a tiny little amount, wouldn't it? It would be just a drop in the ocean of eternity. So clearly, we can't think of things quantitatively. Uh, we live in the. I love this phrase, even though it's from a perennialist. I'll take it because it's true. 
They, we live in the age of the reign of quantity. And we think quantitatively about things that are questions of quality, if you will. It's kind of a poor way to say it, but uh, it's a question of love, a question of communion. It's a question of disposition and not a question of quantity. The wounds incurred from sin are, that are not healed in this life through their appropriate repentance will remain infected eternally in the presence of God. And so here's, a, I think, the better... You know, a lot of this, this whole question, the reason why it's problematic is that we're in a paradigm that's really not patristic. In other words, it's very legalistic, this rationalistic approach to the question isn't patristic. They look at things in terms of healing, of communion, of persons in communion... Uh, and so that's the pro- proper paradigm. And so here he is talking about the question of healing and infection, and the the wounds and the and the sickness that comes through our persistence in sin. He says, if we mock or scorn the person of God by committing sins with our free will, we must nevertheless remember that His glory, power, and righteousness and all is all divine. And all his divine characteristics have no end. Uh, so on account of the sins we have not repented for, and we are we do not feel or want to repent for, right? We're indifferent to the love of God, the communion with God, then then there is no end to this to this uh, stance of suffering. The duration of time in which the evil act was committed is not what is condemnatory and determinative of the imposition of punishment, but its gravity and extent, uh, and extent, meaning the unrepentance of the person. He who dies in grave and disastrous sins is separated from God forever because there's no repentance. And I think that Father Sarah from Rose, and the reason why I, when I translated this book and I edited it, I put this quote in from Father Sarah because I think it, it adds something. You know, Father Elder Cleopas fairly brief in his answers. I mean, we could go on and talk a lot from patristic sources. We will do that a bit in, in a bit, but uh, listen to what Father Seraphim has. I think it's a very helpful quote, and here, as you know, we love Father Seraphim, so why not quote from him? Hell is the love of God rejected. Hell is the love of God rejected. Uh, you remember, maybe, if you were with us during the Orthodox Survival Course, that this question came up. There was a question, I forget if it was from, who was it from? Was it from Anthony here who's with us? or was it, I can't remember who, who it was from, but I think it was. And it was basically this, 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 this is there a, a, you know, can, can the, the approach of Father Sierra from Rose and somebody like Father George Mattelli knows who I'm going to quote from in a bit, can they be reconciled? Are they really opposed? Because... Uh, they, the Father George Metallinos and others in Greece seem to be presenting hell as not a place, don't seem to be, they're saying it's not a place, but a state. And Father Seraphim seems to talk about rejecting some of these modern ideas of, of hell. And I think I showed then, I don't have time to do it now, that actually they're reconcilable and Father George is not adopting this modernist interpretation we're going to go there and see that and talk about that in a minute. But so here, because one of the things people, people are saying, what well, Father George Mattelinos and others are saying that 
the love of God itself, the, the, the divine energies are, are, are what is burning people, because not because they burn if they're enjoyed, or if they're embraced, but they burn when they're rejected. In other words, the stance of the human beings in rejecting the love of God is what creates hell. And this is exactly what Father Seraphim says here. Hell is the love of God. Rejected. Not the love of God, but it, it's, it's when it's rejected that creates the hellish state. Uh, for most men today, life is a small thing, a fleeting thing of small affirmation and small denial, veiled in comforting illusions and the hopeful prospect of ultimate nothingness. But God loves even such men too much to allow them simply to forget him and pass away out of his presence, which alone is life to men. He offers even to those in hell his love, which is torment. So Father Seraphim Rose says here clearly, his love is torment to those who are not prepared themselves in this life to receive it. And I think this is really at the heart of the patristic teaching, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. So let's go to our other text here. And we'll make that small and make this big so everybody can read it because some of you are on phones and all kinds of devices. So I like this, this essay. I don't know who the author is. I found it online, uh, but I thought it was uh, well presented. It's a basic presented presents the sources, so that's where we're going to use it. And I think this is a really important point he makes here. Universalism and Calvinism are really two sides of the same coin because they both deny man's free will. And this is the heart of the problem with this universalist idea. Again, what is universalism? That at the end of the day, at the end of the day, after all is said and done, because God's love cannot be seen as not victorious, there must be a universal salvation. In other words, maybe hell is not eternal. Hell is a state where people essentially are purified through suffering, and then they are united and all are united and all are saved at the end of the day. Well, that would deny man's free will. And so that's why it's akin to a, the flip side of Calvinism. Because no one is forced to be condemned and no one is forced to repent. People are free. This is really important. This is what one of the many errors in the West. It all centers on question of free will and this goes back to Augustine unfortunately to a certain degree at least the debate or the problem begins there but if we look at scripture we look at St. John Chrysostom and other saints the Synodicon of Orthodoxy they all say one thing none of them say universalism the, the sources of our life scripture is very clear we've already talked about it. I'm not going to go through it again uh, in Matthew 25 there's five references or, or what is it eight references to eat the, the eternality of the suffering. In Thessalonians, we have the same thing, everlasting destruction. St. John Chrysostom says the same thing, that they who have dared the contrary shall rise to everlasting punishment, which never has an end, has no, ne never ends. Says it again and again in different homilies. St. John Chrysostom, who's a great, great father of the church, uh, the fire shall not be quenched, he quotes scripture. Torments there are immortal, suffering and eternal destruction. And then the consensus of the saints. We've, in orthodoxy, we don't 
quote from one saint or two saints or three saints, but from the consensus of the fathers, together with Holy Scripture, together with the Holy Councils, together with the Holy Canons, together with the Synodic and of Orthodox. You see all of it together. And this, this is, the, this is the, the infallibility of the Church really rests in that it's, it's what has been quoted in uh, many times, St. Uh, Vincent of Lourdes, that which is believed by all, uh, at all times, everywhere, essentially is the Orthodox faith. And that, that's, that needs a little, obviously a little unpacking because it's qualified. But uh, in any case, uh, the consensus of the saints. And St. Clement says there's punishment of eternal fire, St. Ignatius of Antioch, St. Justice the Martyr, St. Theophilus of Antioch. I, like, I, I think what he says here is good. For the unbelievers and for the contemptuous and for those who do not submit to the truth but assent to iniquity when they have been involved in adulteries, fornications, homosexualities, or sodomy, the action, the act of carrying it out, uh, avarice, uh, in lawless idolatries, there will be wrath and indignation, tribulation and anguish, and in such and in the end, such men as these will be detained in everlasting fire. Now, this, this, this teaching, obviously, is under great attack. And there's a reason why it's under great attack. Because people don't want to hear about sin anymore, right? People are rejecting even the existence of the devil. And, and they want these various states of the fallen man, uh, especially the sexual sins, fornications and uh, perversions, uh, they want those to be justified to be uh, ratified to be acceptable and if that's the case then this teaching obviously uh in saint paul and our lord and in the fathers is anathema today it's an anathema so this brings us in direct and utter conflict with the world and the spirit of the world today and so you see there are even preachers and teachers in the orthodox church who have erred have fallen away have not been condemned unfortunately uh uh I don't mean that I don't want them to be condemned, but I mean in, in the sense that their teaching needs to be condemned and they need to come to repentance. Unfortunately, it's not been the case in some high-profile cases. And that's not to be all that, that's not all, all that surprising because of the age we live in. There will be those, even in the church, who fall away. Uh, we have to remember that all the heresies began in the church, right? It wasn't outside the church. There didn't exist this... Uh, for, for at least the first 500 years, there didn't exist this long history of a heterodoxy existing outside the church. So many of the ancient heresies obviously began in the church, and then they were, that's why the fathers were so adamant in, in, in fighting heresy immediately. Can you imagine if, if the stance of the fathers was akin to the stance of the ecumenists today, or the hierarchs, many of the hierarchs we have today, not all, thank God, who are essentially indifferent to or friends with heretical uh, uh, leaders and, uh, and, 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 and do not condemn and do not reject heresy? Could you imagine if the Holy Fathers in the 4th century had that stance? Well, we would have, uh, all, we would have ended, the, the world would have ended long ago <laughs> because it's precisely this indifference to truth which is bringing about the apostasy and therefore the falling away, and the rise of the Antichrist and all the rest. So these things are all connected. Uh, St. Uh, Inerys of Leon talks about eternal fire in his Against Heresies. St. Hippolytus, Hippolytus, the Pope of Rome, 
and the list goes on. Saint Anthony, Saint uh, Cyprian of Carthage. Uh, I like what he says here. Uh, the grief and punishment will then be without the fruit of repentance. Weeping will be useless and prayer ineffectual. Too late will they believe in eternal punishment who would not believe in eternal life. It's really, really sad, but really true. Too late will they believe in eternal punishment who would not believe in eternal life. This is a good quote for all of our universalists. And then they, of course, quote St. Gregory of Nyssa many times, supposedly supporting the idea of universalism. Even prominent theologians today have embraced this idea. In comparison with the one who has lived, excuse me, in comparison with the one who has lived all his life in sin, St. Gregory of Nyssa says, not only an innocent babe, but even one who has never come into the world at all will be blessed. We learn as much, too, in the case of Judas from the sentence pronounced upon him in the Gospels, namely that when we think of such men that which, that which never existed is to be preferred to that which existed in such sin. For as to the latter, on account of the death of the ingrained, uh, the depth of the ingrained evil, the chastisement in the way of purgation will be extended into infinity, infinity, so those who support the idea that St. Gregory, one of the great church fathers, was a universalist need to see all of his church quotes, not just the ones that they like to see as in, as, and interpret in way of universalism. They need to look at all of the quotes. So St. Augustine as well, St. John Cassian, he says here, Whoever after baptism and the knowledge of God falls into that death must know that he will enter. He will either have to be cleansed, not by the daily grace of Christ, an easy forgiveness, which our Lord, when, it, when at any moment he is prayed to, is wont to grant to our errors, but a lifelong affliction of penitence and penal sorrow, or else we will be hereafter consigned to the punishment of eternal fire for them. So after baptism, after the knowledge of God, if one falls into deathly sins, serious deathly sins, St. John Cassian is telling us, yes, there will be a, a forgiveness from Christ, but also combined with that, there needs to be a lifelong process of purification and repentance and return, which, which you know, if you want to put it in a spatial way, uh, when you fall back so far, you have a long way to return, Right? If you fall back a few steps, in other words, you have an evil thought, uh, you judge your brother, uh, but you immediately repent of it, these kind of things that are part of the struggle that we're all in, maybe that can be compared to falling back 5, 10, 15 steps or meters or something. But when you actually engage in a murder, a, a serious sin of fornication or adultery or any number of other very serious sins, which inflict great harm not only to yourself but to your brother well it's not 15 steps but 500 steps or 5,000 steps I don't know how, how, how you, the analogous uh, the analogy would work there but it's certainly not a simple thing and so you have a long return and that's what this, this whole repentance is about but because we today in our day and age have grown accustomed 
to only talk about love, 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 and mean, in that sense, tolerance, uh, a sentimental love, a sexual fornicating love, many times. The true love of uh, sacrifice and of uh, suffering on behalf of the other or on behalf of our uh, love of God, like we, we take upon ourselves out of filotimo, out of, out of a sense of honor and duty, that's no longer really stressed anymore. And so people don't realize the, the need for repentance. And so when that leaves, obviously then we want to make everything just hunky-dory at the end of the day, forgive everything. We do it ourselves. There's no more punishment of children in the sense of punishment in the sense of pedagogy, right? That, that people want to take away all, all kinds of negative reinforcement uh, in the pedagogy of children. It's all the same spirit. It's all the same spirit of, uh, of, of indifference to truth and, uh, and, la- and, and our own lack and, our, and covering our own sins many times. When we're talking about pedagogy of children, what we're doing is trying to, to relieve ourselves of the duty and of the pain and, and the, we're lazy and, uh, and we could go on and on about that. Uh, St. Justinian the Great, a, a, an important theologian in the church, uh, not really well known, but an important theologian for the Fifth Ecumenical Council, if anyone says or thinks that the punishment of demons and of impious men is only temporary and will one day have an end, and that, that, that a restoration, apokatastasis, that's the Greek term for, that's often uh, referred to, uh, refers to universalism, this idea of everything will be restored, will take place of demons and all impious, let him be anathema. Let him be anathema. So we have anathema. We have anathema also in the Synodicon of Orthodoxy. Everybody knows who that is. That, that is right. That's the ter- that's the the uh, text produced the restoration of orthodoxy after the iconoclast period, but has been added to for generations, for centuries. So today we have many of the heresies which existed from the eighth century on, including Barlam and others, uh, and in 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 more modern versions you include also the papal Protestants and the Reformed Protestant heretical groups. So the Synodic and Orthodoxy is a collection of essentially the teachings of the Church uh, and the condemnation of the heresies. And it's a very important text. We read it every Sunday of Orthodoxy, uh, the first Sunday in Lent. Uh, We read it, and it has in there a condemnation of the universalist heresy. What what do people who are, are trying to restore this heresy... Uh, and what and 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 the heretics that taught this, what do they think about this? I would love for them to to address that. We we don't have enough debates in the Orthodox Church. What do you guys think? Uh, let's get an informal poll here in, in our chat thing. Do you think we need to have more de- good, honest, loving debates between theologians and bishops and priests? Why why is there such a? I, I think there's a terrible spirit of papalism, top down, totalitarian kind of. A mentality in the governance of the church today and it's 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 really stifling and i don't think the church was ever like that i mean look at the council in 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 in, in acts did, did, did peter just get up and say this is what we're going to believe i'm the head of the apostles and you must believe this did he do that that would be papalism right that would be the worst of papalism 
And of course, we say to the papalists, look, Peter didn't do that at the first council. That's not how the apostles understood his place. And yet today, in some parts of the Orthodox Church, uh, we're just having a top-down, this, this is what the bishop says, this is what the patriarch says, fiat from above. We don't work that way in orthodoxy. Of course, the final decision is made in council of bishops, and we don't have a council of laity, but here what we do is we have, after that council of bishops, we have a confirmation by the people of God. So yes, they partake of that, that uh, governance in that way, coming from behind, of course, but that's essential. Without that, it won't stand in the church. Uh, and so the synodicon of orthodoxy here uh, is really, really important. And if people just ignore it, I don't understand how they can do that. They need to be, re they need to be confronted. And either it's going to be done over a very painful, in a very painful way over a, a long, painful journey. That's usually what's happened when we have heresies that refuse, the, the, the majority of bishops embrace it and then refuse to repent. We have a very painful process that we have to go through, like the iconoclast heresy. It would be much better if actually we had open discussion and we were all humbled through that and the grace of God and the, and the will of God uh, brought about a, 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 a peace in the church. Yeah, I'm not talking only about an ecumenical council of bishops, but I'm talking about the whole process in which the church, internal life of the church, discerns the truth when there are new teachings that are proposed. I don't think it was just a one-out, let's all get together, the bishops, and that's it. I mean, if you go back to the 4th century, they talk about this being debated on the street and going to the, the butcher, and there'd be questions. What do you think about what St. Athanasius says? What do you think about what the first, first council said? There was discussions among the people on the street about this was the, this was the you know, nightly news. Uh, and, of course, that, that was a healthy thing, right? I don't think it was bad uh, for people to, to, to search out the, the scriptures and the fathers for the truth. So anyway, getting back to the Synodicon. Uh, to them who accept and transmit that there is an end to the torment or a restoration again of creation and of human affairs, meaning by such teaching that the kingdom of heavens is entirely perishable and fleeting, Whereas the kingdom is eternal and indissoluble, as Christ our God himself taught and delivered us, and as we have ascertained from the entire old and new scripture, that the torment is unending, and the kingdom everlasting to them who by such teachings both destroy themselves and become agents of eternal condemnation to others, anathema, anathema, anathema. Couldn't get much clearer. Couldn't get much clearer than this. I don't know what people are doing entertaining universalism in the Orthodox Church. Just, uh, it's a mystery. Uh, and listen, what he, did you pay attention to what he said? What, is, what does it mean, this idea that there's an end to torment? It means that the kingdom of the heavens is perishable and fleeting. That's the necessary corollary, corollary, right? Corollary. That has to go together. If there's an end to suffering, there's an end to the kingdom. And that's, and we're going to explore that with Father George Metallianos' teaching in a minute. 
uh, and you're going to see why that has to be the case. You can't talk about the end of one and not the end of other. And we saw that earlier with Father, with Elder Cleopa, who said, "Well, if you do that, then 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 the the bliss the blessedness of, is also temporary because it it is." Um, <clears throat> Well, it's a question of free will as well, right? So if you can't, you can't have uh, free will be denied only for those who rejected God, right? So there's got to be free will in both ways. Anyway, let's keep going. There's a lot to cover. Um, so there's two ways that the Sinaiticon attacks. The negative direction and the positive direction. On the, on the one hand, they anathematize those who accept there's an end to torment. And on the other end, it says, we ascertained from the entire Old and New Testament. So the scriptures are searched out and they're clear. There are objections, unfortunately, from notable sources. And it's a tragedy that I have to say this, but Bishop Kalistos Ware is one of those notable sources that initially taught orthodoxy in his original version of the Orthodox Church. So if you're going to give that out to somebody, or if you're reading that, if you're looking for uh, a good introduction to orthodoxy, you need to go back to those earlier editions from the 60s and 70s. Find those on some church uh, book stall, you know, an older church that's been around for 60, 70 years. They would have that version, I'm sure. Uh, and uh, try to find that original version so you can avoid... Some of his later speculative theology, which takes him away from the patristic uh, consensus, and it's a, it's a it's a tragedy that we have to say that. So he quotes three people. Not surprisingly, the first is Origen. He says he considers him a valuable resource, even though he was condemned as a heretic by the Fifth Ecumenical Council. Then he says St. Gregory also taught that. We've seen that St. Gregory does not. Uh, And there are texts, sorry, getting ahead of myself. St. Gregory says, as we saw before, that it will be extended into infinity. So it's it's cherry-picking of St. Gregory. Origen is not a source that we're going to quote on this, obviously, because he fell away and was condemned for that very teaching. So strange that he is being quoted as a, or as a source for orthodox teaching. And then, very unjustly and sadly, St. Isaac the Syrian is quoted supposedly as being a source for this teaching. And there's a text that we're translating. We have somebody in Athens, a good friend of ours, who's begun translating a very important text, which is a response to these modern academic theologians who want to say that St. Isaac the Syrian was a heretic, essentially. He was an historian, and he was a part of the historian church, and that he was an historian in his teaching, and that he embraced this idea of universalism. And how, why is that a problem? Why is, that, why is it wrong? that they, that, that they Because they, they, have, they found texts that they're saying belong to St. Isaac. They're saying that these are texts by St. Isaac, and they're not. And we have an academic treaties or a response by a very good priest and theologian in Athens, written about, I don't know, 15, 12 years ago, I can't remember. And it responds to all of this. Metropolitan Hilarion Alfeyev is another one who supports this idea. He's written a book on it, and that's uh, one of the main texts that's presented today. It's really sad 
that these otherwise good academic theologians are embracing um, these teachings uh, and supposing that St. Isaac the Syrian taught that, St. Laetius the Athenite rejects that idea as well. And these texts, again, are not by the saint himself. And we'll, we'll eventually get that. I don't know, it might take a year or two, but we'll eventually, God willing, pr produce that text and people will be relieved of that delusion. Um, so, unfortunately, I should say, just so people don't misunderstand me, Metropolitan Hilarion Afeyev has many, um, undoubtedly many good texts, but he also errs in terms of ecumenism, which is a tragedy. And we can talk about that in the spring when we go into that question of ecumenism and orthodoxy. Um, so, yes, they're cherry-picking from St. Gregory. And interestingly, Bishop Callistos in Orthodox Church, as I said, says it is heretical to say that all must be saved, for this is to deny free will. Yes, indeed, it is, Bishop Callistos. So why are you entertaining it with a chapter in your latest book which says, dare we all, may we dare to believe that all will be saved. No, we should not dare because that would be <laughs> having a heretical mindset that you say we cannot have because it denies free will. It's a mystery how people cannot remain stable. Too much speculation, too much speculative theology, too much writing. We need to be careful. There's always this tendency to sit down and do everything, be you know, get a name for ourselves, but also more just try to do everything and write about everything and have an opinion about everything. That's a bad idea. I'm not an expert in everything. I never will be. God forbid I think I am. I'm not an expert really in anything except maybe, hopefully, my own sins. I become an expert in how sinful I am. I look at my sins. I see my sins. That would be a wonderful thing. That would be a wonderful thing to come to self-knowledge. True self-knowledge would be the greatest thing through the grace of God. So there's a danger in academic theology. People write too much, speak too much, and inevitably they're going to make mistakes. And then their whole work is marred because of it. Isn't that, isn't that a tragedy? It's a tragedy. So the last quote uh, is from our great saint Paisios the Athenite. And then we're going to go into our questions, I think. 18 questions. Struggle with all your power to gain paradise and do not listen to those who say that everyone will be saved. This is a trap of Satan so that we won't struggle. Of course, the great struggler understands that most excellently. And we often forget this because academic theologians who sit behind their desk and speculate are not struggling that much usually. There are exceptions. They're not struggling that much. And so they don't understand that from that perspective, right, of spiritual struggle, of the spiritual warfare, it, it's in that context that, that, that a true theologian is, is forged, and that's precisely because he has personal discernment and experience of the wiles of the enemy. And so he would never fall into the speculative theology and I, the idea that, well, maybe this, maybe that, because we've, we've, we've read our way into it, right? We've, 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 we've surmised our way, we've speculated our way into this possibility because, well, of course, we can't, we can't su uh, suppose that 
uh, a loving God would allow for this to exist, etc., etc., etc. But look, if you're in the spiritual struggle and you see that this thought, this, this idea will lessen your struggle, will lessen the crucifixion of the passions, well, immediately you know that it's not of God. You don't need to get into any speculative theology. You know that if the devil wants you to believe it and it will lessen your struggle, it can't be of God. And that's so important. It does affect our personal salvation is endangered. Evangelism is endangered. Why would we go to the ends of the earth to convert if everybody in the end will all be together anyway in a blessed paradisical state why does it matter? Let them misuse their free will. Let them choose evil. At the end of the day, they will suffer for it, but they'll be restored. So why bother, right? Oh, well, let's, they might say, well, let's, they would be terrible for them to suffer for, or, you know, I don't know. How. And the other thing is, what exactly does that mean? Is it like 100 years they'll suffer? Can you even quantify that? That whole idea of quantifying it doesn't make any sense. We're not talking about a time anymore, are we? We're talking about the, second judgment the second coming the last judgment and now time as we know it no longer exists so what what is this idea of suffering for a time the whole idea of purgatory this whole idea has been rejected purgatory has been rejected by the orthodox church so what would this mean it would be a kind of purgatory wouldn't it uh, it seems to me that there's an aspect that reminds us of purgatory so so there's many problems with this many problems with it hopefully this text uh, has shown you that. Now let's go to uh, another text that we're going to look at real quick. Uh, oh, before we do that, let me just comment on this icon. Okay, This is the famous icon of the Last Judgment, the Second Coming, the Last Judgment. And what do we have in the middle here, coming out of the feet, under the feet of Christ? What do we have? The River of Fire. There's, a, there's an essay written by uh, Alexander Kalomeros, The River of Fire, okay? It's a little problematic. There's aspects of it that are very good, of course. Uh, I don't remember much of it. It's been 15, 20 years since I read it. But I remember there was a debate there uh, around, surrounding that. But in any case, this, uh, this teaching, specific teaching, is that this is coming out of where? Of Christ. What is this? This is understood to be the divine energies of God. And why this river of fire is not God wishing people to be condemned. It's not God sending them there like the Calvinist torturing God. What do we understand here? Well, this is the rejection of God, rejection of communion with God, the rejection of the divine energies, uh, the light of God becomes a fire to those who reject him. Uh, this, this icon is very instructive. Uh, it's a little, um, needs a little unpacking. So let's go to that. Let's go to Father George just for a little bit. Now, we can really get in a rabbit hole, you know, some, I don't want to chase down all kinds of other issues and get into a whole lot of debates because there's, there's a lot to unpack here. But I just want to share some things with you uh, and unpack things because I'm sure you're going to run into this. Paradise and hell, he says, first of all, he says, he says what we already heard, quote scripture, right? And the cynics are and all the rest. And then he says, paradise and hell are not two different places. Now, I think this is the problem with where people find problems with this. What does he mean they're not two different places? Well, I think they're two different places spiritually. In other words, spiritual stances. That's exactly what he will say. And so he, misle he might mislead a few of us to think, well, what, what does that mean? Uh, they're not places like spatial. They're not like, it's not like there's, uh, 
it's a question of spatial distance. I think that's what he wants to say here. Uh, it's it's a rationalistic. He calls it idolatrous, but it's a rationalistic approach to the thing. Okay, so uh, there are two different conditions, states of being. Okay, places may, might in the way of in the meaning of dispositions or uh, you know what what places in we often we can say and we're referring to the state of being, the stance, uh, the, the 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 disposition. Uh, the, the, the response to the call to communion, right? Uh, they originate from the same uncreated source and are perceived by man as two different differing uh, experiences. More precisely, they are the same experience except that they are perceived differently or they're experienced differently, I think would be better, uh, depending on the internal state of the person. This experience is the sight, is the sight of Christ in the uncreated light of his divinity, of his glory, from the moment of his second coming through to all eternity, all people will be seeing Christ in his uncreated light. That is when those who worked good deeds, this is quoting the Lord himself, in their lifetime will go towards a resurrection of life, while those who worked evil in their lifetime will go towards a resurrection of judgment. So here we see, as I've said before, that the resurrection is for all men. So all will be resurrected. They'll all be in their body. And they all they all stand before God, right? They all stand before God in some way or another. They're not going to be God's not going to be uh, not there. There's no place where God is not, right? He's in He's in Hades. He's on the throne. We say, right? He's uh, He's uh, with Paradise and the Thief. Uh, so the resurrection and life, resurrection of the judgment. What is it all about? Well, that's the that's the state of someone eternally. That's whether they're in life or they're they're separated from that life. They're not a part of that life. In the presence of Christ, mankind will be separated like sheep and goats, or kid goats. Actually, is a better translation. To his right and left. In other words, they will be discerning, will be discerned in two separate groups: those who behold Christ as paradise. And those who will be looking upon Christ as an all-consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 29. So, they're the same reality experienced differently. Or, hell is the love of God rejected, as we said, right? This is what is depicted in the portrayal of the second coming. From Christ, a river of fire flows forth. It is radiant like a golden light at the upper end of it where the saints are, at its lower end, the same river is fiery, and it is in that part of the river that the demons and the unrepentant, the never repentant, according to a hymn, are depicted. Why is the is it the fire that's pre, that's prepared for the demons? That's where people who who embrace the passions and fall after demons go. Well, because they're never repentant, right? We talked about also the rejection of the Holy Spirit as unforgivable. That's the same thing here. The never repentant, the rejection of the Holy Spirit, the uh, the the, uh, the state of, of unrepentance. That's what. That's why people go who re- who embrace that and fall off the passions and, and reject Christ. Obviously, they go to the same place because that's the, that's the place for people who never repent. Right? It's the that's the that's the demon stance. So they go like the demons. They have the same stance as the demons. Never repenting. Never returning is another way to put that. Repentance is a return. It's not remorse. Repentance is not remorse. Don't think repentance is, oh, I feel bad about my sins. Oh, how terrible. 
Oh, I'm so sad. Why did I do that? No, that's not repentance. Repentance is changed. Repentance is return. Repentance is communion. Repentance is being in the same place and space spiritually as God. Uh, by the way, synchordesy again, I've said this before, means to be, synchordesy means is, is uh, forgiveness in, in English, and it means to be in the same place, same space to be in communion. Those are all synonymous. So that's what, that's what communion and salvation means. So what does not being in communion, not being in salvation, not being in the same place with God? That's judgment. That's separation. That's unrepentance, not returning, not coming back into communion. That's, those are the, that's the way we should understand these things. So uh, in Luke 2.34, we read that Christ stands as the fall and the resurrection of many. That's the prophecy. When he was just a babe, right? He was presented in the temple. The fall and the resurrection of many. Mm, interesting. The fall of many. Christ becomes the resurrection and eternal life for those who accepted him and who followed the means given for the healing of the heart. Those who rejected him, remember, he becomes their separation and their hell. L- listen to that. He, who followed the means given for the healing of the heart. The means, the way, methodology, so important. Healing, restoration, right? Healing, well, this here one. Uh, restoration, health, communion. That's what, these things are synonymous. St. John the Latter says, the uncreated light of Christ is an all-consuming fire and an illuminating light. So there you go, right there. Right there you have the two states of eternity. Judgment and life. Paradise and hell. St. Gregory Palamas says, Thus it is said, He will baptize you by the Holy Spirit and by fire. In other words, by illumination and judgment. Right there. Did you ever think about... Did you ever think about those two things as being illumination on the one hand and judgment on the other? That's an illuminating thing. See, when we read the Holy Fathers, the Scriptures come alive. Then we understand the Scriptures. Depending on each person's disposition or predisposition. Look at that. Right there, he says. It's all about that. What are you doing? Do you respond to his love? Uh, Or if we take scriptural passage... He says, eat my body, drink my blood. And they turned away. And then he says to Peter, will you also depart? Oh, I, just, I just can't get over that. Never, I'll never get over that passage. Unbelievable. That right there is saying, he's saying to Peter, he's saying to the apostles themselves, not to anyone, to the, his own people, his own ch- children. He's saying, do you want to leave? It's up to you. Your disposition will determine whether you're in communion with me, my disciples or not, and therefore our eternal state. All right. We could go on. I recommend the text. Go to uh, this. Uh, it's on this. It's, uh, just search this phrase here. Paradise and hell according to the Orthodox tradition. Father George Metellinos, one of my professors. He wrote, my, he wrote a preface to my book. I'm so thankful to God. Really, 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 really thankful. I don't know if I can be more thankful for a man uh, after my own elder uh, that he uh, read my book and uh, and embraced it and wrote a preface because uh, I highly, highly respected him as a man and as a teacher of the faith. I met him many, many times in uh, Athens and in Volos. We would meet 
And he's just a tremendous man. Reposed a couple years ago now. Tremendous person. He had Arcondia. He had Filotimo. He was a true uh, gentleman. What a good man. So thanks be to God. There you go. There's the teaching. You can pursue it there. You've got the text now. You can continue on uh, to go deeper if you like with Father George. And there are other texts online. Um, in fact, I just had one in my mind I was going to tell you and it just escaped me. But maybe it'll come back uh, to recommend. Oh, Father, I think it was Father, Father Romanides, uh, Ancestral Sin. That's a very good book. It might be out of print, though. I don't know. Somebody told me it was out of print. I hope not. Oh,